Join me in prayer, if you will. Our gracious Father, we have begun a new year, but each day can be new, and we should celebrate you every day. We should just be thankful for so many blessings, and one of them that is precious, it should be precious to us, and that's the Word of God. It is our light here on this earth. It is the guide that we need. It is the hope. It is the direction. It can answer every situation we have, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It is all packed into that word. And today, we praise you that Catherine is here and able and willing to open the bread of life to us. And Lord, just get our hearts prepared right now that nothing else is more important than hearing from you today that you would get the glory and we would become lights that shine in our worlds individually and collectively. Speak through your servant now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the year of vision. First time Helene told me that, I didn't know what she was talking about. Now I get it, 2020. And today we're going to have a wonderful vision As we look at what happened on Mount Sinai, I'm calling this lesson Israel's Pentecost. That sounds funny because we usually affiliate Pentecost with Israel? No, the church. The church. Um, But this is Israel's Pentecost. And we're going to be looking at chapter 19. We got all the way to verse 9 of 19 last time. But we're going to pick up with verse 10 and finish the chapter in this first section. We're also going to run over to Acts chapter 2, where Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is recorded for us when the church was born. So we're going to be looking at Exodus 19, Acts chapter 2. And then we're going to break, and then we'll get back, and we'll have our second session, which will be on the Ten Commandments. Now, I told the ladies yesterday, I literally... And you probably know this, could spend a year on the Ten Commandments. They're very deep. There's a lot you could say about them. But the the purpose for this study is um, Christology, Old Testament Christology. So I am going to be focusing mostly on, you know, types of Christ. And there's a few types of Christ, such as the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. But we're going to rush through them rather quickly. From here on, we're halfway through... When we finish today, we're halfway through the book of Exodus. There's 40 chapters, and we will be basically finishing up chapter 20. The next 20 chapters, we're going to move much faster than we have through the first 20. Because the next 20 get into a lot of details about the law. We're not under the law. We don't need to know a lot of the things about what you do if you have leprosy and all <laughs> the little there's a lot of details that would literally probably bore you to tears and you'd all be sleeping out here I'm not going to get bogged down in all that I'm going to just talk about how the law and the different aspects of the law are a picture type of Christ and the offerings and the sacrifices and then we'll get into the tabernacle and all the pieces of furniture and everything about the tabernacle which is definitely Everything about the tabernacle pictures Christ, even the colors of the curtains and the gold, everything. So um, we're going to move a lot faster in the next uh, 10 chapters, 20 chapters, excuse me. Um, And if I start to get bogged down, don't let me, okay? Because I would like to finish the book of Exodus by the time we break for the summer. That's, That's a big want to. Don't know if I'll make it, 
but because um, we don't have that many sessions left. But I'm going to strive for that so we can start out something new and fresh when we come back, Lord willing, in the fall. Okay? So that's where we're going. And you wonder why in the world I have what I have up there on the wall. I can't say screen or monitor, but on the wall we have butterfly wings. One of our girls in the Monday study sent me this on an email, and I was absolutely flabbergasted. Again, why should I be? God's creation is just so amazing that he even, now this man studied butterflies, took pictures of butterflies and moths all over the world, and started to realize that in the butterfly wings were the different letters of the alphabet. And he put them all together, so you have actually on butterfly wings and moth wings, A, B, C, D, all the way through Z. Is not that amazing? And then, in addition, you have the numbers, 1 through 10, basically 1 through 0 up there. Can you see them? I know the screen isn't the greatest in the world. Oh, you sent it out already. I thought you only sent it to the Monday group, so some of you have already seen it. You can order a poster. I thought, wouldn't that be a neat poster for a child's room or something? <laughs> It's just beautiful. There is no end to God's creation, is there? When I saw that, I just praised him all the more. And I, I think that throughout eternity, we're going to be learning about all the hidden, hidden things that he has in his creation that we missed. I mean, this man had to take years to figure this out. I got to thinking, why only the English alphabet? What about the Hebrew alphabet? What about <laughs> you know what? I bet the Hebrew alphabet is hidden somewhere in creation. Who wants to spend their life looking for it? Maybe it's in the fur of zebras or something. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Giraffes. <laughs> or the Greek alphabet. I, I just, I know he's got all kinds of things out there for us to discover. And there is no end to them. And I just praise his name for that. So I wanted to share that with you all um, before we get into our lesson. And now we're going to get into our lesson. <laughs> so let's uh, look at Exodus starting at verse 10. I think I'll try to read it. I didn't yesterday and maybe the women were confused because I didn't read it. So let's look at verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day. Isn't that interesting? Always the third day. This is by the way now the third month on the Hebrew calendar at Sivan. Be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about. In other words put a boundary, a fence sort of a something or other around the mountain. Saying, take, take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. That's a strict warning, isn't it? There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said, Unto the people be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. In other words, no uh, sexual intimacy. Verse 16, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp did what? Trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. 
Isn't that an interesting expression? Uh, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the mount of the mount, top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, <laughs> poor guy, up and down, up and down. Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. He's really serious about this thing. Don't let the people on the mount. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for though thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron, with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. All earth's nations belong to the Lord. Why? Well, because he created them. He even established them in Genesis chapter 10, I believe it is. 10. The nations. They all belong to him because he's their creator. He's their sustainer. However, he chose one nation to be his peculiar treasure. A treasured nation. And we saw that last time in verse 5 of this chapter. And it certainly wasn't because of her great godliness, was it? It wasn't because she merited that favor from God. It was solely a matter of his sovereign grace. Um, he is sovereign. So he has the right to do whatever he pleases to do. And it pleased him to establish a new nation to be his treasured nation. And it pleased him to have salvation come from the Jews. Israel's special privilege now, to whom much is given, what is the other side of that coin? Much is required. So her special privilege as his treasure was, uh, has made her more responsible to love and obey him. I forgot all about this. Okay, to whom much is given, you're held more responsible. So she was held more responsible to love and obey him. Since she was to be God's holy nation, as the Lord told her in verse 6, not only his peculiar treasure, but a holy nation... Um, she was more responsible. Uh, she was set apart in order to represent him to the rest of the world. It tells us in the book of Leviticus at least six times where God says to Israel, be ye holy for I am holy. That was her responsibility. In every realm of life, Israel was to be governed by the fact that she belonged to holy God. And this included her diet, what she ate. It included what she wore, her clothing. It included her marriages, her family situations, her family life. It included how she worshipped God. And it included even such things as how she was to bury her dead. The Jewish people were not to live like the rest of the world. They were set apart to live for God and to be holy like he is holy. And so... Um, they weren't to live like the pagans of the Gentile nations. Her priests were to set the godly example for the people. They were to guide 
and, and teach the people the difference between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, etc. Did they succeed? Did Israel's shepherds succeed in their task? No. They failed miserably in their responsibilities. And subsequently, we know, because the people followed their leaders, the nation fell into great defilement. Now, although Israel is not behaving as an holy nation, is she today? Does she even really know the Lord? No. She worships God, but because she doesn't really know the true God because she doesn't know Christ. Um, And you can't know the Father without knowing the Son. That's just the way it is. He's the one who revealed the Father, and they reject their Savior. So she's not a holy nation today. Um, She's not acting as a kingdom of priests. But there will be yet a generation of Israelites who will fulfill this task. After the church is out of here and after the tribulation, she will she will do her job. She will be his peculiar treasure and, and be a holy nation during the millennial kingdom. Well, when Christ, uh, I mean Moses, when Moses first told the people about their special call, oh, and in the meantime, who is the holy nation? The royal priesthood, the peculiar people, <laughs> the peculiar treasure. We are, aren't we? That is our task today in the meantime. And twice in the book of 1 Peter, it tells us that we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, and we are God's own treasured possession. All right, well, when Moses first told the people of their, <clears throat> of their special calling, after having arrived in their exodus journey at the foot of Mount Sinai, what did they do? Well, they all unanimously and excitedly promised that they would obey all that the Lord had told them. We saw that in verses 7 and 8. All that the Lord tells us to do, we will do. Okay, well, you haven't even heard yet what he's going to tell you to do. Um, But they're very sincere. They wanted to obey him, didn't they? They were sincere. They're just extremely naive at this point to think that absolute obedience to all he was going to say to them in their responsibility to be a holy nation that they would be able to accomplish. No one can fulfill the law, can they? Not even the Ten Commandments, which we'll look at next time. They did not understand at all. At this point, they did not understand the depravity of the sin nature. They did not know how prone man is to quickly rebel. Well, in verse 9, bye-bye little Lego men. In Exodus uh, 19.9, Moses then had returned back up to the mount to tell the Lord. Now, I don't know why he had to tell him, because the Lord knew anyway. But he told him of Israel's promise to obey all his commandments. And it was then that he learned from the Lord that he was going to appear. He was going to come down on Mount Sinai in a thick cloud. And the purpose of his descent would be so that the people, not just Moses, but the people would be able to hear him speak directly. Hearing him directly speak to them would then verify that everything Moses had been telling them about God was true. They would finally really believe. You know, some of them might have had doubts. Maybe this guy's just getting senile and thinks he's talking to God and he's not really. But now they would know. Henceforth, they would know that what Moses told them really was coming from God. Well, in verses 10 to 15... We find God's instructional outline for the steps that the Israelites were to take in order to purify and prepare themselves for meeting with their God on the third day. 
from when he told Moses, I'm going to come, he said, it'll be on the third day. And his presentation that he would give what he would, would, what he would speak to, them, or at least begin to speak to them in the Ten Commandments and proceeded from there to give the rest of the law is known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant from Mount Sinai. I like to say Mosaic better than Sinaitic because I'm not sure I'm saying that right. <laughs> um, but uh, he would give them that, the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, they had already agreed to accept their responsibilities as his peculiar treasure, his, his royal priesthood, his, his um, holy nation. So now he is going to begin to reveal to them what would be involved in meeting those responsibilities. They said, yes, we'll do it. And so now he's going to start to tell them what they would have to do. It was very necessary to begin with for them to understand the vast gulf that there is between holy God and sinful man. They didn't get that yet. They did not yet understand how holy, holy, holy their God is. So what he gives them um, is instructions for them to prepare for his holy presence. And he, those instructions involve three realms. First of all, he sets boundaries around the mount where he is going to come down. He's holy, so they can't come near that mount, that mount becomes holy because he's holy. Then they are to um, wash themselves and their clothes. And third thing, uh, abstain from sexual intimacy. Well, so the Lord established boundaries around Mount Sinai. Well, he probably didn't, but he had Moses and the people. I don't know how they did that. If they put a fence around there or put a rock fence around there or put guards all around the mountain. I don't know exactly what they did, but there was a boundary. They were not, not, not. And he repeats this like two or three times, not to go up the mount or even to touch the border of it. Likewise, they were to keep their animals from going beyond the set boundaries. He was really serious about this, so serious that he said any beast or any person who crossed those boundaries was to be what? Put to death by ways that where another person wouldn't touch them, you know? Stone them to death or, or shoot them through with an arrow. Don't even touch the person because then you'll be contaminated. This was all, I mean, this sounds strict, doesn't it? But this is, God is trying to um, Teach people who do not understand his holiness about his holiness. I know that punishment seems really severe, but it is a very serious matter for sinful man to try to approach holy God his own way. And that's what somebody would be doing. They'd say, oh, well, I don't care what God said. Now, it's not his will that any should perish. That's why he gives the warning over and over again. Don't come your way out of curiosity or whatever. Come my way, and I said, don't approach, don't touch, don't come near, or you'll be put to death. Well, anyone who would disobey is showing irreverence for his holiness and irreverence for his command, his word, right? And he's trying to teach about his holiness. So this is very strange. Anyone today who tries to approach God, holy God, their way, what happens to them? Same thing, isn't it? Ultimately, they're destroyed. Well... So his instructions stress the absolute, his absolute holiness. Just as the ground around the burning bush was called what? Holy ground. So too was the entire mountain here holy because 
of his presence when he would come down upon it. So if a person tried to press past those barriers or the guards, whatever, just so he could gaze up in curiosity, um, the Lord said he was displaying irreverence, or that's what it amounted to. And irreverence is the byproduct of a wrong attitude about God's holiness. I think we have a big problem with that today in our culture, even in our church. The churches have made God so ca- you know, casual, but they forget that's his ultimate, supreme attribute is his holiness. And we need to honor and respect that don't we? I know this is silly, but even when, when I go to church, I, I dress up. I don't go to church like I go to Walmart because I want to reverence my God and show him he is worth cleaning up and looking different than the rest of the, the week. The Israelites did not yet have an adequate comprehension of God's ultimate divine attribute. You know, because they'd been living in Egypt for centuries. And one thing I can tell you for sure is the gods and goddesses of Egypt were anything but holy, were they? Men make gods and goddesses after their own image, so their gods and goddesses are just as sinful as they are. Because then they don't feel guilty. Um, None of the gods and goddesses of any of the pagan peoples at that time, or any time, are, are known for their holiness. And so they didn't really understand about a God being holy. And he needed them to learn, to have reverential fear, awesome fear of him. They also needed to learn how to see themselves in light of, in view of his glory, his power, his magnificence, his purity. They fell far short of being able to presumptuously just rush into his presence, which is why God actually designed the entire tabernacle, the Old Testament worship system, to emphasize the vast difference between his holy person and sinful man. That's why there's a curtain around the tabernacle. That's why there's the veil between the the rest of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, where God would come down in the Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant. All of this is to stress that God is holy and man is sinful. Well, in contrast, the New Testament... Aren't you glad we live in the New Testament age? In contrast, the New Testament stresses the nearness of God. Draw nigh unto God, and he will what? Draw nigh unto you. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us so as to open a new and living way into his holy presence. And that living way is Christ. He is the living way, isn't he? He is the way into the Father's presence. So the Old Testament essentially says, keep your distance. The New Testament says, come unto me, come unto me. God's next instructions to the people were about sanctification. They were to cleanse themselves and their clothing and to focus on spiritual matters, not earthly pleasures such as sexual intimacy. There was nothing wrong with that, but he wanted them not to think about material and physical, wanted to think about spiritual things. And while they were washing themselves outwardly, what he really wanted them to think about was washing themselves inwardly. Because that's what's really important. Not so much the external, it's the heart. You know, it wouldn't do any good if I went to church looking great. If my heart was wrong, would it? (laughs) No. So he wanted them to think about washing their souls and putting on clean clothes. He wanted them to think about having clean hearts. Because it's always about the inward man, isn't it? Not about the out. Bathing and changing one's garments. 
are frequently used in the Old Testament to mark a new beginning. A new beginning, such as Adam and Eve after the fall. What was the first thing God did? <laughs> he clothed them. <laughs> he gave them new clothing. He killed the, uh, the, the animals so he could cover them with the skin. Um, shed blood. Jacob and his family in Genesis 35 too changed their clothes at a new beginning in their lives. Joseph, went, remember when Joseph came out of prison and he first appeared before Pharaoh? What did he do before he even went before Pharaoh? He shaved and he cleaned himself up, changed his clothes. Um, lepers in, in Leviticus 14, whenever they would return to society, oh, this makes sense, <laughs> they would clean themselves up and uh, probably burn their clothes. So to bathe and put on a new garment was an Old Testament picture of the truth of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's also, we could say, a picture of 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, after explaining his purpose for having chosen and delivered Israel in verses 1 to 6 of this chapter. You know, you're to be my people. You're to represent me, my ambassadors to the rest of the world. He told them his purpose for delivering them. Then he described the preparations that they were to make uh, prior to his appearance on the third day in verses 7 to 15. Now we come to verses 16 to 25, which give us Moses' description of what happened when God manifested himself on the mount. Pretty exciting. On the morning... Of the promised third day, there were sights and there were sounds that are difficult for you and I to imagine in the fullness of their awesome magnitude. It was interesting. Yesterday, while I was teaching about this, we were actually having a thunderstorm. <laughs> and it was like living illustration. It was pretty, it was pretty strong. Um, but it tells us that <laughs> there were thunders and lightnings in verse 16. These are often the elements that God uses as signs of power and glory that signal his presence. If you go through the scripture, there's a lot of times when he appears or does something, there's thunder and lightning. Um, also, it tells us that the entire mountain was filled with the smoke of a furnace. And uh, when the, the Lord descended in the fire, it says the whole mountain quaked greatly. That means like, earthquake on the mountain so thunder and lightning and smoke and fire the lord comes down in fire and then it tells us over in deuteronomy 4 11 that the whole mountain was burning with fire the whole mountain was on fire except i think it was like the burning bush don't you it was on fire and yet i don't think anything was being consumed it was just burning the glory of the divine nature was visible in these uh in the in, in these natural phenomena but everything was veiled in a thick cloud so that the people were not consumed. You see, no form of the Lord, no form was seen by the eyes of mortal men. Or they would have probably been consumed. Now, there are pictures when I'm going through, you know, Internet looking for pictures. There are pictures of Mount Sinai and it's got like Jesus up at the top or it's got God on a, in a, on a throne up there. I purposely didn't use those because it tells us that there was no form. There's a verse I'll read later on. They didn't see God. They just saw the manifestation of his holiness in the fire and everything else. Um, 
But there was not a doubt in one of their minds that God was not present among them, was there? No. Well, all this dramatic activity was also accompanied by the piercing voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. Verse 16, which caused all the people to, like the mountain, they were also quaking. They, they were trembling because that voice, that, that trumpet voice, was not coming from somebody in the camp blowing a shofar. Where was that trumpet sound coming from? It was coming from heaven. And it was uh, sounded repeatedly, not just once, but over and over. And it tells us in verse 19 that every blast of that trumpet got louder and louder and lasted longer and longer than the previous one. It was announcing the Lord's appearance. And remember, he told Moses, he said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the trumpet, the people are to assemble at the foot of the mountain before him to hear his words. So everything, everything was absolutely intentionally awesome. And it was done this way by the Lord so as to inspire the people to have reverential fear of him and his majesty, holiness. And that's exactly what the Lord did tell Moses on this occasion. This is over in Deuteronomy 4.10. We have another description of what went on that day in Deuteronomy. God said to Moses, he said, Gather me, the people, together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me. That's the purpose. I want them to learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth and that they may teach their children. What were they supposed to teach their children? To fear God. Are you teaching your children to fear God? Reverential fear? We should. We should be. He's not one to be trifled with. He's not a benign Santa Claus, you know? He is the holy God. To be respected and honored and glorified and magnified. Give him all the glory, power, and dominion. You know, as it says in Revelation, he is worthy. Well, when Moses spoke, it says God answered in verse 19. And when God answered him by a voice. And when God spoke, guess what? Not only did Moses hear what he said, but the people. They didn't just hear a trumpet noise that they couldn't quite figure out what it was. They could understand God. They could understand his words. They heard the voice of God. Can you imagine? First time. First time God spoke directly to his people. You know, outside of Adam and Eve and the some of the patriarchs this time first time with the nation of israel and the whole scene was overwhelming it was as if the forces of the natural elements and the supernatural were together joined in a salute of honor to their creator as he came down upon sinai to manifest himself for the first time this way to his people moses was summoned to the top to meet God at the top. And again, he was given a warning. Go back, tell the people once again about not touching the mountain or not passing the barriers. You see how serious he is? He doesn't want the people to die. That's why he says, just listen to me. Obey me, do it my way, and everything will be fine. That's what he still says today. Just do it my way or the highway. The highway to <laughs> destruction. <laughs> he did invite... Uh, Moses to bring up Aaron with him, which Aaron does at a later point in time. Moses goes up and down this mountain a lot of times. 
And in a later visit, Aaron does join him. He also brings his two sons, Aaron's two sons and 70 elders. Now they go only so far up the mountain and then Moses goes all the way to the top. But he still says here, don't let the people and don't let the priests, they're not allowed to break through to come up unto the Lord, verse 24. So the stage is set for Almighty God to speak directly to his people. But before we get to that, first and, <laughs> first and only direct, without intermediators, divine Old Testament revelation to corporate Israel, I want to return to verse 1 of this chapter and to some calendar information that we are given there. Everything Moses wrote, he was inspired to write, wasn't he? I believe in the divine inspiration of scripture. You know, he didn't just write this because he basically wanted to. He wrote it because the Holy Spirit was inspiring him and he wanted him to include this information. He was, he was inspired to real, reveal the, um, the day that the Israelites arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And what day was it? It was the first day of the third month, which in Hebrew is the month of Sivan, S-I-V-A-N, which is comparable to late spring for you and I, late May, early June. And uh, you can do the calculations because we know when they left Israel, I mean Egypt, it was the Passover season, right? Right? Okay, it was Passover, and then they, you know, might have taken a day or so to collect everything that the Egyptians gave them to get out of here, and, and then they took off. So we know, and the Jews do this calculation, this isn't me, I trust them because they're a lot more, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, and they have done all the homework, uh, and they're really good at math, too. <laughs> so they say that when Israel, with Moses, arrived uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, it had been 45 days since their exodus from Egypt. Jewish tradition tells us that Moses' first ascent, after they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai on the first day of Sivan, then the very next day, the second day, and that's in verse 3 of this chapter, um, he made his first ascent up the mountain, and he communicated God's message with the people. You know, then he came back down and told them that they were to be a peculiar people and a holy nation and all that. And um, that was on the third of Sivan, 47 days after the exodus. The second day was 46. Did I say that? Okay, they got there 45 days. Then he went up 46, came down 47. And then he reascended the mount, verses 8 to 14, on the fourth of the month. And at that time, he received the Lord's message that he was going to come down on the third day from the fourth day. Okay, and he's going to count the fourth day, four, five, six. So the Jews say that it was on the sixth day of Sivan that the Lord came down. So on the same day, he went up on the fourth <laughs> This is getting confusing. But take a picture like some of you are doing. Uh, and this is going to be in your notes. You'll get your notes probably later today. Um, so he goes up and back down on the same day to tell the people, let's get ready. The Lord is going to come three days from now. And so you need to start sanctifying yourself. So on the 4th and 5th of Sivan, that's when they sanctified themselves and washed themselves and did all that. That was the 48th and the 49th days since their exodus from Egypt. Well, then on the third day, just as the Lord had said, which the Jews say is the sixth of Nevan, Sivan, <laughs> Nevan. 
the sixth of Sivan, God did exactly as he said. And he came down. He descended upon the mount to speak directly to Israel. So how many days was that since Israel's exit from Egypt? 50 days. Thank you. I said all that just to tell you. It was 50 days after their exodus. That's according to Jewish and rabbi calculations. Now, there is a Jewish feast called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, if I'm saying that right. Shavuot is a Hebrew word. It means weeks, Feast of Weeks. It is one of seven God-given feast days that Israel is commanded to celebrate. Now, the reason for the term weeks or Shavuot is not because this feast lasts for weeks and weeks. That's not the reason for it. It is called the Feast of Weeks because it was to be held seven weeks after the preceding feast, which was the Feast of First Fruits. So you have First Fruits, and then they are to count seven weeks, 49 days, and the day after that seventh week, they are to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. It is celebrated on the 50th day from the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of Weeks is one of three feasts which are referred to as solemn feasts. They were pilgrim feasts. Uh, all non-disabled Israelite men were required to attend three out of the seven feasts in Jerusalem. The other two, besides the Feast of Weeks, were the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread come, is joined, really connected to Passover. So a lot of people, if you're reading commentators, they'll say the three required feasts were Passover and um, Weeks and Tabernacles. But technically in the Bible, it says the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, the Shavuot Feast was to celebrate, the reason for it originally, was to celebrate the end of the spring barley harvest and the beginning of the summer wheat harvest. However, with the passing of time, the rabbis realized that there was another very, very good reason besides the harvest, another very good reason to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. Doing their calculations from the book of Exodus, they determined that God had another reason for this feast, why he gave them this particular feast. They realized that the timing of it coincided with the great event that had happened on Mount Sinai when God came down and began to give his people the law, the Torah, beginning with the Ten Commandments. So the rabbis have declared that the giving of the law on Sinai, on the Feast of Weeks, the 50th day from the Feast of First Fruits, is actually the birthday of Judaism. Kind of the unofficial birthday of Israel and Judaism. This is when God revealed himself to his people and made a new covenant with them by giving them written instructions, the Torah, on how to live as a redeemed people. So Shavuot is called the season of the giving of the law. And to this day, on this holiday, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Jewish people around the world gather together in their synagogues on the morning of Shavuot, and they read the contents of Exodus 19 and 20, just like we're doing this morning. That's what they do. 
the morning of Shavuot. And when they come to the Ten Commandments, everybody stands as the Ten Commandments are read. So in our next session, we're going to do that. We're all going to stand as I read the Ten Commandments. That shows honor and respect to them. Well, the Feast of Weeks, and some of you have already figured this out, haven't you? Is also very significant to Christians. Because the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, was the same, very same day as the birth of the church. Birth of Judaism, Old Testament. Birth of the church, New Testament, Acts chapter 2. What day was the church born? Pentecost. Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean in Greek? It's a Greek word. 50th. It's called Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. What happened on the Feast of First Fruits? Jesus resurrected from the dead, didn't he? 50 days after the church was born. So, uh, and that was the day, of course, when God the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and filled those who had put their faith in Christ. Therefore, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, some call it Feast of Harvest, Pentecost, is also called the season of the giving of the Spirit. So it's called, the Jews call it the Feast of the Giving of the Law, we call it the, the season of the giving of the spirit. So on the very same day that Israel was celebrating the season of the giving of the law on stone tablets. How did God give the law? On stone tablets. Um, the Holy Spirit came down on the very same day, came down and wrote the law where? On hearts of flesh. It was a fulfillment of God's promise that he would give a new covenant and his law would be written on people's hearts in Jeremiah 31, 31. You see, the Lord in eternity past, the Lord God Almighty, who can write an alphabet on butterfly wings, <laughs> he had orchestrated and planned the crucial events of his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the birth of his bride, the church, to coincide with four spring feasts. That's why he gave these feasts to Israel to celebrate because they were pictures of him when he would come and the important events in his life. Um, and they are Passover. Unleavened. What happened on Passover? He died, right? As the Passover lamb because the Passover lamb was all a picture of him. He's the Passover lamb. Then a feast of unleavened bread. The very next day he was buried. He has no leaven. He was perfect, right? His body would not corrupt in the grave because he is unleavened bread. He is the bread of life, unleavened bread. The third day, what happened? Feast of first fruits. He wrote, he, because he is the first fruit of the resurrection, isn't he? And then 50 days later, you have the Feast of Weeks, which was a picture type of the birth of his, bo his body, his bride, his church. Those four spring feasts were prophetic, prophetic event types that were fulfilled at the Lord's first coming. They have all been fulfilled, haven't they? Now, it's interesting when you read the seven God-given feast days that you find there are no feast days assigned to Israel to celebrate during the summer months. They don't start up again until you come to the three fall feasts, which begin in September, fall. So why are there no feasts in the summer? What does the summer month, what does that part of the calendar represent? The church age, where we are today. You see, the church was born on the Feast of Weeks, right? That was a birth. And she will continue until she's called home on the next feast, which starts in September, which is the Feast of Trumpets. 
oh, isn't that interesting? What's the thing we're going to hear? <laughs> Voice of a trumpet calling us up. So that's why I firmly believe that the rapture is going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. And this year I checked it out. It's coming on September 19th. So I might not make it to my next birthday because my birthday is the very next day. <laughs> okay, you can ask me about that if you have a problem with that. But anyway, the, um, the three God-given fall feasts are trumpets, atonement, and um, tabernacles. Trumpets, uh, rapture. It also has significance to call Israel um, then she's going to go through the seven years of tribulation. And at the end of those, that refining fire, <laughs> she will finally, the Lord will come and she will finally recognize him and her sins were, will be atoned for. That's represented in the, uh, the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. And then she will tabernacle with him, the Feast of Tab- Tabernacles, where she will actually dwell with the Lord for how long? A thousand years in the millennial kingdom. So the three fall feasts are about the second coming of Christ. Is that not perfect? It is. I mean, this, this is another thing like butterfly wings that proves that the Bible is, you know, that God exists. No men could make this up. This is all planned in eternity. I'm going to give you some amazing parallels between Exodus 19 and Acts chapter 2. Both took place on mountains that are called in the scripture mountains of God, the mountain of God. You had Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Both happened to a newly redeemed people, a newly delivered people. Exodus 19 marks the birth of Israel, Judaism. Pentecost marks the birth of the church and Christianity, basically, we could say. Both events brought God's people a gift. What was the gift in the Old Testament? Exodus 19. What was the gift God brought his people? The law, the Torah. And it was a gift. It was a good thing. Um, On the day of Pentecost, which was the same holiday in the New Testament, what gift did he give the people, his people? The Holy Spirit. That's a great gift, right? (laughs) I'd rather have the Holy Spirit than the law. (laughs) Yeah, you have kind of the law shows us how much we need the Savior. Well, in both events, God's gift was given as he personally came down with the mighty rush of the sound of wind and fire in his presence. I don't know if there really was wind, but there was a sound of wind. That's a miracle, isn't it? We have the sound of wind, but no wind. When Moses came down from Sinai with the law and he saw the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, hmm, the consequence was the physical death of how many people? 3,000 people. However, when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, the result was the salvation, the spiritual salvation of how many people? 3,000 people. 50 days after Israel's exodus from Egypt, the Israelites received a new covenant from God, the Mosaic Covenant. 50 days after Christ's resurrection, believers received a new covenant from God. Both events shared similar sounds and symbols, such as wind, fire, smoke, voices. Do you know that the Hebrew word for voices, like the voice of the trumpet sounding at Sinai, do you know that that Hebrew word, it's uh, kolot, K-O-L-O-T, actually means languages? (laughs) It's like the trumpet was speaking voices, languages? That was something new I learned this week. 
On Pentecost, the disciples of Christ were miraculously able to speak what? Languages, even dialects, so that everybody present that day from the diaspora, you know, spoke different mother tongues, uh, was able to hear the gospel in their own language. The Talmud. Now, the Talmud is rabbinic commentary on the Torah. The Torah is the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. The Talmud is commentary on it, okay, by the rabbis. It tells us, the Talmud tells us that when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, here's a direct quote from the Torah. It says, every single word that went forth from the omnipotent God was split up into 70 languages for the nations of the world, end of quote. Now, I don't know if that's true, but the rabbis have decided that that was true, that when God gave his people the, the law, the Ten Commandments, when he spoke, it went out in 70 different languages. Interesting. Uh, and we know, of course, that every language group of people heard the gospel in their mother tongue on, on Pentecost. You know, Pentecost was the reversal of Babel, wasn't it? It was the initiation of another building project. But this time, not a building project by man. It wasn't the building of a tower. It was a building project by Christ, and it was what? The building of his church. Right, right. Well, at Sinai, there was one fire visible to all of Israel. The whole mountain was like on a fire. (laughs) On Pentecost, there were many fires, weren't there? At Sinai, the people were kept from the fire. At Pentecost, the fire was on them. I love that. Whereas the people at Sinai were prohibited from coming near God's presence, the spirit on Pentecost came to actually indwell the people. Oh, I'm so glad to live in the church age. God was present at both events. Okay, he came down to meet the Israelites on Sinai, and he came down in the third person of the Godhead on Pentecost. And in both events, a mixed multitude of people were represented. Remember when Israel left Egypt? It said it was a mixed multitude. It wasn't just Jews, Hebrews. There were Gentiles with them who decided to worship their God, and they went with them. And the same thing was true on Pentecost. There was Gentile proselytes there to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. At Sinai, God called his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. On Pentecost, he made his people (laughs) a kingdom of priests. Amen. We are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You know, fire in God's presence came down on people at Pentecost, not on a mountain. And that's just some. I'm sure you can think of some more similarities, but this is not just coincidence, is it? No. Luke was inspired, just like Moses was inspired. Luke was inspired of God to depict the events of Acts chapter 2. You know, he is the author of not only the Gospel of Luke, but the author of the book of Acts. So he was inspired to depict those events as kind of a second Mount Sinai experience. The apostles and the other believers had already received the first promise of God the Father. 
What was the first promise of God the Father? Way back in Genesis 3.15. To send a promise seed to the woman, the Savior. Okay, they had already see, received him. They knew Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Savior, the seed of the woman. So they'd already received the first promise of the Father. And uh, now, in Acts 2, they're waiting for the second promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Jesus, at his ascension, told them to return to Jerusalem. When he ascended from the Mount of Olives, I mean, he could see Jerusalem right there. He says, go back to Jerusalem. I'm sure they went to the upper room. And he says, wait. I want you to wait. This is Acts 1-4. Wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And uh, then they, you know, watched in amazement. They gazed as the Lord just ascended up into the clouds from their sight. That was 40 days after the Feast of First Fruits. He walked in his glorified, resurrected body on earth. He met with his disciples and taught them. Met with the road, guys on the road to Emmaus, you know, for 40 days in his resurrected body. On the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended. And then he told them to wait. Well, they went to the upper room. They obeyed. And uh, they didn't know what, what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. But, of course... Um, we can look back on it and know that 10 days later, because 40 plus 10 equals what? <laughs> 50. 10 days later. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, that's when they would receive the second promise, the Spirit. But in the meantime, we are told in the book of Acts that they just spent their time praising God. They would go to the temple every day and they would praise God. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. And they would spend their time praying in the upper room. Well, outside the walls of uh, the upper room, 10 days after the Lord's ascension, throngs of Jewish devout men plus Gentile proselytes to Judaism are flooding the holy city of Jerusalem for the early morning activities of the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. Okay, because they count it, and it's 50 days after Feast of First Fruits. It's also known as Pentecost nowadays. I don't know if they called it Pentecost then, but... Maybe they did because the word 50. And so the people are coming. It's early morning. They're all coming into the outer courts of the temple to participate in the morning Shavuot service. And that service would begin with the blast of trumpets and the recitation of prayers. All the people would recite these prayers in, in uh, unison. And then an assigned reader would chant from specific passages from the book of Ezekiel and also from the book of Habakkuk. Now, the Ezekiel passages, if you look up what the guy would be chanting, include references to a whirlwind and to brightness around an amber-colored fire and a reference to um, of the voice of great, a great rushing sound as of wind. So they're reading passages like that. And then the Habakkuk passage uh, has a reference to a time of silence that is followed by speech and uh, awesome fear, terrible fear. Well, it may have been, and I think it likely was, at the very time of the recitation of those Old Testament passages that we read in Acts Suddenly, <laughs> there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, which filled all the house where 
the 120 disciples were sitting. They're sitting there waiting. They're not sure what day they're going to receive the Father's promise. But as soon as they hear that mighty rushing sound, what do you think they realized? Their wait was over. Especially when they looked at the other guys. Hey, what's that little fire over your head? (laughs) I couldn't see it over their own head, but they could see it over everybody else. The Holy Spirit had come. He was again going to breathe life into a new creation, such as when he moved upon the face of the formless, void, dark waters of earth at the time of creation, gave earth life, and such as when he breathed life into Adam, and such as he will do one day even with Israel, Valley of the Dry Bones, when he will breathe spiritual life into Israel. She's alive today, but not really. She's only alive physically. She's not alive spiritually. The day of Pentecost was the birth of a new body of people called the, the what? The church, a new holy nation. It was a new era, an era when the spirit of God literally indwells his people. That had never happened before from Adam, since Adam. The spirit would come upon people to anoint them to prophesy, anoint kings, etc., but never to indwell them. Do you know how blessed we are to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God? I hope you are. hope you've been born again. That's what it means. Born again from above because he's come down, not just on a mountain, he's come down into us when we believe in Christ. Well, when cloven tongues, like as a fire, <laughs> sat upon, I'll go back to that other picture, sat upon each of the 120, Those disciples, now they're Jewish, aren't they? They're all Jewish. They understand their Old Testament. They know about the story of Mount Sinai. They knew the whole Old Testament. uh, So they knew that those cloven, that cloven flames of fire, tongues of fire, uh, was a phenomena associated with the presence of God. Because they knew that when God appeared to Moses, it was as a burning bush, right? Um, they they knew that he had led Israel by a pillar of fire at night. And when his glory was revealed on the top of Mount Sinai, the sight was like a devouring fire. So as soon as they saw the fire, heard the mighty rushing, they put it all together. They knew. And plus they were filled with the spirit, so they really knew. So on that Shavuot morning, uh, God initiated a new covenant with Israel. As he said he would do, Back in Jeremiah 31, when he said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He poured out his spirit, as he had also foretold in books like Joel and Isaiah. I believe it would be very, very difficult, almost impossible, for those Jewish disciples present in Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father and also to be there to celebrate the Feast of Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. You know, as soon as that those fire, that fire appeared upon them, their heads. They knew it was the Feast of Weeks that very day, didn't they? Okay, so they're Jewish. They understand. And they would realize, oh my goodness, it's been 50 days since Christ's resurrection, which was on the Feast of First Fruits. And of course, he died on the Passover, and he was buried in the Feast of, uh, you know, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, I think it would be impossible for them to not have understood the typological association of the four spring feasts with the one in whom they had placed their faith. Don't you? Don't you think it 
Snap. Especially when they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they get the understanding. They got it. Do you know most people, Christians today, don't get this? They don't know this? Why don't they know this? It's so exciting. The feasts are pictures of Christ. First coming, second coming. If your young people in your Sunday school class don't know it, teach the, teach it to them. Teach it to your husbands. Teach it to your grandchildren. Teach it to everyone who will listen to you. I'm so glad you listened to me. All right, well, the other night, right before I went to bed, um, I was doing some more research on Internet, and I came across a group of people who believe something interesting that just, woo, I got really excited about it because I thought, that makes sense. Now, I'm not dogmatic about this, but think about this. We do know, and I could give you a lot of reasons, but you do know that Jesus was not really born on December 25th. Got that? You know that? That's been proven. Uh, The Bethlehem, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but the Bethlehem shepherds wouldn't have been out in the field at night if it was winter. It was all about, he was born in the spring. They know that he was born in the spring sometime. Well, I got to thinking with these people that said they believe Jesus was born on the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And I got to thinking about that. Do you know that tradition says King David was born on the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks? David is a picture type of Christ. Okay, well, that's interesting. But do you know, when you think about it, there's three members of the Trinity, right? God the Father came down and descended on Sinai on the 50th day from the Feast of Fruits, the Feast of Shavuot, didn't he? God the Father on Sinai. We know that God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came down on the same very same day on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, in the New Testament. Well, so wouldn't it make sense? Jesus is the same today. I mean, God is the same today. <laughs> wouldn't it make sense if christ the second person of the godhead came down to earth and was born in bethlehem on the feast of shavuot now don't go telling people that catherine said jesus was born i'm just saying it's interesting it's interesting to think about isn't it the church was born on that day the church is his body seems like the head would be born on the same day as the body Okay, this is where we get to eat again, (laughs) take a bathroom break. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for the truth of your word and how exciting it is. And I pray that every one of us will take this, that we've had spiritual heartburn this morning, and that we will take this lesson and reach others with it, because it is not something we should keep to ourselves. It's been in your scripture for ages and ages, and it should be shared. And it's a shame more people don't understand the significance of so much um, that's associated with the Jewish people and with Israel. We learn from all of that. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament... Old is new revealed, or however that expression goes. But it is exciting, and I pray, Father, that... um, We will use this for your glory somehow. Now bless the food that these lovely ladies have brought to the nourishment of our bodies and help us to prepare for our second session as we look at the Ten Commandments. For we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed holy name. Amen.